Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, my name's Richard Moss, and I make a podcast called The Life and Times of Video Games. It's a narrative and documentary-style show about games' history and how the medium has evolved over time. Each episode or bonus interview soundbite delves into some aspect of the ups and downs of the industry, or the design, development, and legacy of the best or most interesting games ever made. It's all carefully edited, complete with original music and sound design, and a mix of interviews and deep research. All set up to tell you a great story about the secret worlds behind or within video games. I hope you enjoy the show. This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. What's up, Argonauts, and welcome to another episode of Arcast Mini. This is Arcast Mini number 41. I'm your host, David Gilton, and with me is a very special guest. Uh, so with me is game designer and fighting game community advocate Adam Hart, a.k.a. Keats. So how's it going there, Keats? Good. I bet you say all of your guests are very special guests. They are, but in this particular <laughs> case, you are definitely a special guest because we are talking about uh, basically the fighting game community and Evo and basically everything in between. So... I actually just want to kind of start up with your name. Where did the name Keats come from exactly? Uh, <laughs> nobody ever <laughs> asks me this. I think I grabbed it from uh, an old Adam Sandler movie. Oh, really? Bulletproof uh, with Damon Wayans and Adam Sandler. And I just liked oh, the way okay. it sounded, and that became my internet name way, way back in the day when we were on, like, you know, Prodigy and AOL and stuff. And, uh, <laughs> right. It's just, that's just how it's been i mean i think my original online handle was the double dg because it was kind of like a play on my initials but because the double dg i got like a lot of dms for people thinking i was a double d girl so <laughs> i had to quickly change that at some point you know yeah uh, so i think you lucked out better with keats honestly <laughs> yeah I, I, apparently I, I i flubbed the spelling or i changed the spelling i don't really remember because in the movie it's k-e-a-t-s uh, uh, but i've been using this name since you know at least early high school maybe late middle school or whenever that that movie came out I, I i actually did some backyard wrestling in late high school as well and i used that name for my backyard wrestling persona so oh wow all right well steer clear for keats everyone all right <laughs> there's a video of me on youtube somewhere getting power bombed through steel chairs so you know i'm gonna have to find that now right <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Um, so obviously you have a love for fighting games in general uh, since you've worked on them and you play them and all that. Um, how did your love for fighting games start exactly? Uh, I, I mean, it's definitely uh, a case of Street Fighter 2, right? Mm -hmm. um, I was an arcade rat growing up. Uh, my, my first experiences with video games were, you know, my dad taking me to an arcade when I was like six. and We just watch him play games like circus and pinball and Mm. Galaga and stuff like that and uh you know he'd let me play occasionally but I'd die immediately and you know <laughs> he could play for a while on one quarter so I just watched him play for the most part yeah did you ever get him back though like with Street Fighter 2 or anything like to play oh, against him or... my dad is really actually quite not good at video games yeah <laughs> <laughs> I just thought he was at the time 
Sure. Um, you know, I had no frame of reference. I was six. Uh, but yeah, time goes on, and I end up at a skating rink for a some sort of school function, like around middle school time, where we're just gonna bunch of kids from school are just gonna be at a skating rink. We're gonna skate in a circle. They have some arcade games there, and I've been there many times. But I walk in this time, and Street Fighter Two is there. Really, the the thing that captivated a lot of us about Street Fighter Two at the time was not that it was a fighting game or that it was some novel new use of of anything. It was just the best looking best sounding thing you had ever seen well totally by far by far like such it was such a jump and uh i don't think i skated at all on that visit i just played street fighter <laughs> 2 right and i played it with the other kids from school who i was much better than at video games but you know for something as weird and new as that it was an even match between everybody we we're just jumping around and mashing the buttons and stuff and uh you know, I just it just captivated me, and and I was addicted to it ever since. I did my best to go to arcades to play as much of that as I could. I got any home version that was available. The first one I had at home was the the championship edition for Genesis with mm. two two six button controllers. Oh yeah, there you go. You came um, prepared. <laughs> yeah, I mean that actually uh, was weird because that was around when my friends decided they were not going to play fighting games with me anymore mm. um, because I I got too good. And uh, I actually experienced the exact same problem because, like, a lot of my friends were also big into fighting games, like, you know, especially with Guilty Gear X2 back in college. Yeah. And I ended up, like, kind of like, you know, being a certain level above them where they just did not want to play anymore. And it was, it's yeah. too bad, honestly. You know? They still liked fighting games, though. I had a couple friends who would, like, you know, I would buy, uh, you know, X Men Children of the Atom for Saturn and. Uh, one of the, one of my friends would import Vampire Savior for Saturn, and then we would, you know, take turns with them and swap them so we could save some money. But they would never play against me, just <laughs> against the CPU. <laughs> and uh, that was always that was always really sad. So, yeah. uh, you know, that's where the love started. And then I ended up finally meeting good players at arcades uh, in the late '90s, um, and and started to run tournaments around like 1997, and and form my own local FGC in Cincinnati where I grew up. So speaking of the FGC, then. What is your take on the fighting game community and its acceptance of people looking to be a part of it as well? Because, I mean, like, I know that there's, like, a lot of um, I don't know, different kind of stories out there as far as, like, how, I don't know, ruthless or aggressive that, that, that you know, that the FGC can be. And I've experienced sure. it on both sides, so I'm just kind of curious on your take. Yeah, it depends on who you meet and what their upbringing was and, you know, how good a person they are, I guess, in some cases. <laughs> uh but the I think the acceptance, if you if you kind of trace it back and, and root it all the way back, comes from the arcade culture, to be honest. Mm. It was uh, a place where your legal guardian could drop you off for, you know, four hours and give you a couple bucks. And you had to make that money last. Right. Right. You had you had five dollars in a dream. <laughs> 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 and you could play final fight or something and even if you were the best at it it'd still take you a couple credits to beat it mm -hmm. and that's only going to eat up uh you know 20 to 30 minutes of your time it's also a shorter game too so you could yeah. like beat it if you really did know it so yeah but if you were good at a fighting game you could play on one quarter for an hour two hours maybe mm -hmm. there was no time to like judge anyone for anything other than are you here to be my opponent in this fighting game and try to stop my win streak here comes a new challenger yeah, yeah no time <laughs> to judge you for like your skin color or gender or socioeconomic background it's mm. just like you're here to play uh you have the same dream as me you want to be on this machine for two hours on one quarter and that's 
you know, you bond over that. Mm. Most of the cases I, I can remember in the arcade were all of mutual respect. There's only one kid I remember at my arcade who was just like a total douchebag. <laughs> and uh, he threatened to knife me once because I OCV'd him with Captain Commando and Marvel vs. Capcom 1. <laughs> That'll do uh, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, because I know for me, I mean, at least like my fighting game background, uh, just mainly kind of playing against people like in like the arcades or playing at home, like on the SNES version of Street Fighter 2 or whatever. Um, you know, like a, a lot of it was actually uh, from playing people from overseas, actually, because I would travel a lot. And so, like, I remember going to, like, say, like, Australia, New Zealand, or, you know, or even over in Japan. And, um, you know, in, in, like, Japan, it was really interesting, you know, purely because there was that language barrier. But we could basically speak through us fighting each other in the game. And I always found that, like, really fascinating, um, especially when you say that, like, you know, the, um, you know, not having to worry about, like, your race, your gender, your, you know, your background or anything like that. Um, you're kind of speaking through the game to each other. Yeah, absolutely. And and I've had that experience, too. I didn't get to travel much when I was younger. But, you know, when I started hitting the fighting game circuit really hard in 2007, got to meet people from all over the world, uh, some who did not speak English. And we were still able to, you know, communicate in some way and, and share something that to me is really special. I'll just kind of share like one quick story I know like from uh, from Japan I know it was playing Capcom versus SNK2 I think because that was the fresh new game at the time and um, I was playing against someone like who played as Geese and I was playing as Rock Howard and um, what was that like, I think I want to say like he was kind of like doing like the whole Star Wars kind of thing it's just like I am your father and I like turned to him and was like Turn. no <laughs> yeah exactly yeah Geese <laughs> Uh, so we kind of like talk to each other just to like movie quotes in a sense yeah, like with that. Uh, so it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. It's just really neat. Like again, uh, not only just with the fighting games, but also just like pop culture in general. Like it's really great in that sense. So, uh, like, in terms of, like, the online infrastructure, because obviously, like, there was the arcade culture back then, but now, like, a lot of, like, fighting games are played online. Uh, so, like, the online infrastructure in fighting games has generally been pretty weak. You are a big proponent for rollback netcode, I know. Uh, so how exactly would that improve on what we have now, and what else do you think we need to improve online play? Uh, sure. I definitely recommend you watch my uh, Hold Back to Block interview uh, on rollback netcode at some point, uh, dear listeners. It is it is a uh, 20 minutes long and uh, it's really good kind of run through as to what rollback is and and why it's really important. Uh, like a I'm mini doc a, kind of thing. Or? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. I'm going to do a much shorter version of it right here. Um, but generally, when you're using uh, delay based netcode, which is what most fighting games use because they are peer to peer, which means that there is no server. That means the uh, your your game is connecting directly to my game and they both have to agree on the game state at all times. I, my you know, no one's the host. So it's kind of like a tether kind of thing? or Yeah. My game isn't telling your game what the game state is. Your game isn't telling mine what the game state is. They just have to agree. All you're sending over the wire is inputs. You're not sending anything other than inputs. And then once you get the inputs and what frame they occurred on, the game will resolve the next frame and, and get the correct game state. Because It's like catching up in that sense, yeah. Yeah, fighting games are deterministic. So the same inputs will always result in the same game state. Uh, that's how all the replay systems work. If you ever watched one of your fighting game replays, it's not a video file, it's an input file. It's just replaying the inputs. 
because mm. the inputs will always give you the same game state. And that's why your uh, replays invalidate when they update the game balance, because if you play the same inputs through a game that has game changes to the characters and stuff, you will not get the same result anymore. The problem with delay-based is that the game state can't move to the next frame until we have the opponent's inputs. Right. We have to wait to play our own inputs until we have the opponent's inputs. So, you know, let's say you're, uh, let's say you and I have like a 90 ping to each other. Ping is round trip. And when I say frames, we're talking about a 60 FPS game. So it's 1 60th of a second. So in a 90 ping situation, you can expect about three frames of delay because I don't need to send my inputs to you and then get them back. I only need to wait for yours, which is, you know, half the ping. So I need to wait three frames to play my own inputs, which is the local delay. And then I should have your inputs for, you know, what was supposed to be happening three frames ago. And then the game can go to the next frame. Cool. All works great. Until the ping spikes or (laughs) packets are lost and uh, regular internet things occur because of regular internet instability. Um, And rollback netcode is just a really smart way uh, when you don't have some authoritative server to deal with this issue, which is, you know, what do I do if the inputs don't arrive? What do I do if uh, the inputs arrive late? And the answer is you just simulate anyway you just go to the next frame and you guess what it was going to be so is rollback netco kind of like the closest you feel like that we'll have to local play like at least like so far like with like the technology that we have or do you feel like that there's still like a lot that can be like improved upon with it i mean there's definitely a lot that can be improved upon rollback netcode is an improvement on delay based netcode which is just a peer-to-peer solution that hadn't been improved for you know almost 20 years it's archaic at this uh, point yeah it, yeah super archaic uh, but rollback's cool because if I don't have your inputs, my game just goes to the next frame anyway, so my inputs are always coming out in the same number of frames. So I get that consistency on my end. And that prediction isn't even complicated. All we do for the prediction is we just assume that you're pressing exactly what you pressed on the previous frame, which turns out is true like 80% of the time. Right, yeah. So uh, does like, the online infrastructure within the country kind of like matter as well? Because I mean, obviously with, with like the United States, it doesn't have like the most steady internet connections across the country, you know? No, it sure doesn't. But even smaller countries like Japan, uh, you know, everybody says Japan's infrastructure is amazing and that's why delay-based netcode works for them. And, right. Uh, you know, that's partially true, but there's tons of videos online of them having the exact same issues we have Uh you know, it depends on the quality of the delay-based netcode as well. But, you know, if you're going to play from the north end of Japan to the south end of Japan, you're going to run into the same types of issues you run into here. Um, and, you know, some of those issues aren't even caused by the infrastructure, but they're just caused by, you know, your home setup having Wi-Fi or some other type of interference along the way that you can't control. And uh, there's just a lot of factors, right? So yeah, uh, you, you can't just make the assumption that the information is going to arrive on time. That's a stupid assumption to make. So what rollback does is it says, let's assume the information will not arrive on time and let's have a way to figure out what the game state is supposed to be when the information finally gets here. So that's what happens is we predict the next frame because we didn't get your inputs and then it finally arrives and your inputs are packaged with the last few frames of inputs as well. And the game checks, like did our guess match what he actually pressed on the other side? And if the answer is no, the game will, you know, invisibly re-simulate the game state back to when it was correct on both sides uh, and then back up to the current frame with the correct inputs and resolve magically before your eyes. And we're just repeating the input 
that we had from the last frame of input you got. If you're walking forward, we're just going to assume you're still walking forward. Hey, you might have walked backwards instead, but when we get the inputs and find that out, we'll roll back, re-simulate, and resolve the game state and get the correct game state. That makes and, sense. Yeah. Uh, most of the time, under reasonable network conditions, that is completely invisible to you. Uh, and the real benefit is, you know, you can get into some kind of not perfect network conditions and still play online, and it still feels okay. It's not perfect, but it's playable. Whereas on delay based, it would be an unplayable mess that would make you break your controller in half. Right. Um, so I guess like with that said, uh, just like real quick, what are some of the um, best games that are out right now that uses rollback netcode? Yeah, you're going to want to pick up uh, Skullgirls, uh, Killer Instinct, uh, Them's Fighting Hurts, Mortal mm. Kombat 11, Injustice 2. Uh, if you want to get into more indie stuff, Punch Planet, uh, Pocket Rumble. I guess them fighting hurts is also indie stuff, but it's pretty recent, so name that the top. It's at Evo now, so it's on the big stays. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So speaking of Evo, then, um, it's actually been announced that the fighting game tournament, uh, Evo 2020, uh, will be an online-only event. Uh, so what needs to happen in order for this to be pulled off successfully, you think? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is, this is I, I have a feeling it's not going to go super well, but I, mm -hmm. you know, I applaud them for trying. It, uh, I think this is where we need to go in the future for a lot of reasons. It needs to be an option, at least. Um, so somebody needs to do the legwork to figure it out. A lot of people do run online tournaments. Uh, you know, we've seen online series for KI and stuff over over the years and Skullgirls. And those occasionally have somebody from far, you know, mixed in. Uh, and, and Rollback Netcode is not magic. It can't fix a horrible connection. It can't fix a connection that's on literally the other side of the planet. It's still going right. to be crazy. Um, so, you know, what's weird to me about an Evo online isn't, you know, this isn't like a weekly KI bracket that is mostly North Americans and some Canadians and, you know, a couple Brazilian people and maybe one guy from the UK. This is going to attract global attention when we run that KI bracket and it's got people from literally everywhere, you know, some of those matches are not going to be good. They're not going to be like netcode wise. They're not going to be playable. So it'll, it'll be very interesting to see how they handle that. If they split it up by region and have regional champions, or if they're going to put them all in one bracket together, I have no clue how they plan to handle any of that. I mean, I know for me, cause like I've, I've like thought about this a bit in terms of like how they can, how they could possibly rectify this. Cause obviously, you know, as you said, like it's a global tournament that you have like people coming from all over the world normally to come to one place. Right. Um, what if you did have just the competitors come to one central location due to social distancing, you know, have them play against each other, but obviously with like, you know, barriers, social, dis um, social distancing and all that, uh, in order to ensure that, you know, the quality of the matches are still there. You're still having the competitors who you want to have there. Um, and then just, I guess like, um, you know, stream like the event that way. Like, is, is that, is that a possibility you think? maybe in a future where COVID isn't an issue, but right now you're still asking that that would still be asking people to travel. Right. Right. And that's yeah. pretty dangerous. Even putting people on planes to be in the same building, even if they're six feet apart is wildly risky. 
Um, and and the, the beauty of online play is supposed to be that you can play from home, but it does come with its own bucket of issues. You know, lag switching is a real thing and people do it and it sucks, but it's pretty hard to detect and prove. Uh, here's another thing that might happen is, you know, what if uh, Johnny Donuts decides to enter Evo Online 10 different times? Mm. You know, what if he has 10 accounts and he's in the bracket 10 times and he just claims ownership over the one that gets the farthest? Especially a PS4 or whatever. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a whole bucket of worms. There are a bunch of reasons why online will never replace offline. But we need to have it as an option. There are some people who are never going to be able to travel for a lot of reasons, be that disabilities or... Uh, you know, inability financially to to travel. Right. Yeah. Um, and they're fierce competitors, and they deserve to play and compete as well. And uh, we got to keep working and finding ways to legitimize online play, so that even if it doesn't replace offline play, which again it never will, it's still a cool thing that we we celebrate. I mean, at the very least, like depending on what happens with this tournament this year. Um, it could end up being like a huge advocate for rollback netcode across across the spectrum as far as fighting games are concerned, you know? Oh, I hope so. I, I think we're past the point of embarrassment where, <laughs> you know, I, I, don't, I just don't understand how 13 years after this was proven to work and, you know, seven or eight years after big AAA commercial games started using it, that this isn't done well and done everywhere already. But, you know, most of the developers and most of the world have switched over to it. It's really just the Japanese made games that are kind of still the holdouts. Why do you think that is, though? Uh, I don't want to speak for other developers, but, you know, you can theorize that maybe there's uh, just no business logical reason for them to do it. Like people are buying the game anyway. Mm. The netcode isn't stopping them from making the purchase and buying all the DLC, right? So right. Because they buy it first um, and then they experience it later. So yeah, yeah the I mean, the way I usually put it is that if you're building a game from scratch, uh, netcode is more expensive than delay based, but not that much more expensive that it wouldn't be the obvious choice. Mm -hmm. But the issue I think we see is that a lot of the Japanese fighting game developers are reusing the same engines. Mm. You know, they they have a working fighting game like Undernight Inbirth, right? That's got working delay based netcode in it. So asking them to add rollback to it now would be a major rework of major parts of the game to get that working uh, for the next version of Undernight. Since it was built from the ground up with that in mind, yeah. Right. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's a monumental task to gut your netcode and build a more complex netcode that is more CPU demanding compared to just building your game around that better netcode. Um, and, you know, if Arc is using the same engines over and over for things like uh guilty gear and and dragon ball z i don't know if they actually are using the same engines for these i just assume they are i mean from what i heard guilty gear strive is using a rollback netcode though they, they they are but they didn't start that way they got pressured into it they are switching that's right yeah but you know up until now they you know they were clearly not planning to use rollback netcode in strive they, they already did a beta test with the delay based netcode mm. that they had they're clearly in the middle of a, a, a panic conversion because they got so much feedback that this was necessary and that was before the pandemic. Um, clearly, it's necessary now. But yeah, I, I just have a feeling that they had, they're like, hey, we have working netcode. This is too big of an investment for too little gain mm -hmm. to do this. But I, you know, I argue on the other side, on the business side, that you, there's no way you're going to make your money back selling your game at $60 anymore. 
the fighting game community is just too small and mm-hmm. dev costs are too high. You need to sell DLC and costumes and characters and all that stuff to, to make your money back. And if people aren't playing, they won't buy. And the only way you're going to keep them playing is if your online's good. If your online's a mess, they're not going to keep playing, and then you're going to sell less of your DLC. And so that that's the argument I make. It's really hard to prove, right? But <laughs> it makes sense in my head logically that this this uh, making online play pleasant is is good for business long term. We need a really strong PowerPoint presentation, I think, in order to basically put all these ideas in mind yeah. and throw to the Japanese developers and let them know that this is what they need to do going forward. Speaking of which, uh, what's your biggest criticism of current fighting game design? And with that, which direction do you believe that fighting games need to go in the future? Oh, man. Um, Since you are a designer yourself, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, there's a couple things. Like the the drive to make things easy has, in a lot of cases, lowered the skill ceiling. You want to lower the skill floor so that people can learn as little as possible before getting in and enjoying themselves. That's a good thing. But if it comes at the cost of a lower skill ceiling, that's less time that people who like the game can spend with it before they get bored because they're not growing anymore. Right. So, you know, the goal is that that juxtaposition between the lowest possible skill floor and the highest possible skill ceiling. But I I think a lot of the uh, push from developers has been to just make things easier and not really consider the effect on the skill ceiling. So when you say easier and not having an effect on the skill ceiling, are you referring to things like auto combos or? Yeah, that's that's a, an example of something that can lower the skill floor, uh, but it depends on how you handle it, right? If uh, Dra- Dragon Ball Fighters is a really good example of this gone wrong, actually. Sure, you can mash out auto combos with your friends and see some cool Dragon Ball Z fireworks, right? It's it's a neat feature, but ultimately people who buy these games are going to play against intermediate and up people when they go online, right? When their auto combo does 35% damage to the opponent, and the opponent's real combo does 100% damage to them. <laughs> right, touch of death ones, yeah. <laughs> that is a massive disparity, and it doesn't... Like, the why is the auto combo even there? Mm. Uh, it, it's not serving its purpose. It's kind of like a crutch, really, I feel like, yeah? It only serves its purpose for a new player playing against another new player which right. is almost never what's happening in a fighting game. It doesn't serve its purpose when you are trying to get your feet wet and hop online and learn how to really play. Now, if your auto combo did 35% and the best combos in the game did 45 or 50%, that could actually work because the auto combo means that you only have to hit your opponent like one more time than they have to hit you with their optimal combos, which makes a difference, obviously. That's a goal to strive for, right? You can look at that and be like, how do I get better? Well, if I learn that guy's combo, I only have to hit him twice instead of having to hit him three times with my auto combo. Oh, that's a, that's a point of improvement I can go after. But if you just are completely blown out in one touch and the combo is super long and it looks totally unattainable... The gulf is too large. Instead of saying, that's a thing I want to work towards, most people just say, yep, I'm out. I'm going to go play something else. So you mentioned Dragon Ball Fighters being um, like a bad example, I guess, as far as like teaching people how to get better at fighting games. What do you feel like is a good example of a fighting game that actually does a good job in terms of teaching people? 
Killer Instinct. <laughs> Killer Instinct. Okay, all right. I know you're a huge advocate for it. So. <laughs> yeah, we we added this in season three. It's an auto combo system of its own. It's a little inside baseball stuff. But when we were talking about doing something to lower the skill floor for season three, there's a lot of talk internally about like one button special moves. And, Mm. You know, making some sort of smash style input where people could just press a direction and a button and, and chuck a fireball. And I argued that, you know, being able to do a fireball or a dragon punch isn't actually difficult or cool anymore. It's not what people are are trying to see when they play. Those inputs have been really simplified. Uh, anyone who puts any just a micro amount of effort is going to be able to do them. Just seeing a fireball come out of your character's hand is not the wow moment it was back in the street fighter 2 arcade days right. when you didn't even know that existed right oh the early 90s yeah <laughs> that's a pedestrian thing you play these games and you expect projectiles to shoot out of your character in some way um i argued what what people really liked what really got them hooked was when they played a game like tekken or soul Calibur, and when they're at the very very entry level and they're not even deliberately doing anything yet they're just mashing the buttons and what happens in street fighter when you mash the buttons is nothing Right, your character just flails around and looks like an idiot. <laughs> uh, when you mash the buttons in Tekken and Soul Calibur, your character does some combos automatically, and they look fucking cool. And uh, it, you know, it makes you want to figure out how you did that. So I argued that if we did kind of like a training wheels combo system, since Ki's got a pretty interesting and unique combo system, we could take a lot of the repetitive quarter circle inputs out of the combos and let people just kind of mash it out, and it would have no effect on the game right it has no effect on game balance it's not a crutch or anything you can legitimately just play that way there's no advantage or disadvantage to it so more like button based i guess rather than like doing like inputs like with um you know with like quarter circles just or half for circles the combos or though just for the combos gotcha so that you still have to throw a fireball the regular way but if you're able to land like a medium kick on me and just keep mashing it your character's gonna do some cool looking stuff and if you are legitimately just mashing the one button, your combo is very predictable and your opponent can break out of it very easily because KI has a breaker system that's very active. But it's a legitimate way to play, and it is a training wheels way to play because it playing that way doesn't disable the real inputs. You can mix and match them. So you can slowly wean yourself off of those inputs if you want to, but you don't have to. And that's a really good marriage because you, I mean, you literally have not gained or lost anything other than people at the bottom can get into the combo game faster, but nothing at the top is, is sacrificed at all. So for like new players, like would you suggest something like almost like a combo tutorial or some sort of like tutorial, I guess, on how to like, you know, make incremental improvements on like whatever, you know, kind of basic combo you have. And then it starts you off at, you know, and then goes to like intermediate and hard and all that. Uh, it depends on the game. Like it depends on what you've built. KI is weird because the easiest combo in the game is the most damaging combo in the game. So okay. <laughs> as, as you make, that's because it's the easiest to break out of. Um, as right. you make your combos more difficult, you're actually lowering the damage you do, but you're making them harder to break. So it's a really easy thing to train wheels yourself into over time. You don't have to be pushed into it. Tutorial modes can be really good. Uh, they they do need to teach people, you know not only what to do, but why to do it. Mm. Uh, and that's hard because you put text on the screen and then, I, I mean, I watch people on YouTube and Twitch all the time just mash through text. They don't read it. They just don't. 90% of the gamers just are not going to read what you put on the screen ever. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really hard to give them context when you, you know, we have a huge lesson in KI, eight different ways to avoid projectiles. So you have lots of answers to how to deal with somebody who's spamming fireballs. 
And uh, that is a really successful lesson for people who read each prompt and take it in. And some people just do exactly what the screen says, which is jump, jump this fireball twice. Now, wind kick through this fireball twice. And then it's just mush, right? Pops right. right out the other side of their head and they don't really absorb what they learned or why they learned it or what it's for. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting challenge. I don't know. Do we make higher quality tutorials that you know have triple a voice acting in them I, I don't know do we patrick stewart teaches you how to throw a hadoken or whatever <laughs> do we write some sort of really complicated ai that somehow analyzes the deficiencies in your play and gently guides you towards answers and then right. hope that you accept the help uh it's a really it's a really hard question and ultimately you know fighting games are a 1v1 thing where you can't blame anyone but yourself for your loss and uh every single person in the world is your enemy they're all your opponents no one is invested in your success but you well also too like with um with like fighting games like it's such a niche genre and as much as it kind of pains me to say that because i grew up as a huge fighting game fan myself but i yeah, do recognize it as being a niche it, it is small it for is. sure um so i mean are, are there other ways you feel like aside from i guess like tutorializing the game within the game or i don't know like any other I don't know, like resources, I guess, that the developers themselves could add to the gaming experience, I guess, like for more people to get involved with the fighting game community. Yeah, I think, honestly, it's that community aspect that you just said that probably is the most promising because most people are really only going to stick with fighting games if something is wrong with them or if they, <laughs> if they have a friend who can help them through, right? It's like a stand-up comedian, basically, in that case, yeah. <laughs> you need a buddy, who is either learning with you so you have someone to get better with mm -hmm. and challenge each other, or you need a buddy who's already really good who can tell you know really tell you what to do next. It's like a coach, and, basically, is what you're is what you're looking yeah. for. Yeah. I mean, I'm just gonna make up a number here, but e even if there are a hundred people in the fighting game community who are willing to teach other people how to play, only ten of those hundred people are actually going to give good advice, right? Mm. So your mileage may vary as well. If, if the person teaching you is kind of pushing you in the wrong direction, you may frustrate. If the person teaching you is unable to play down to your level when you play together and offer you helpful advice, that can roadblock you and get you stuck and frustrate you out, right? There's just, just so many ways out of the fighting game community and not very many ways in other than being stubborn and just loving it. And I've, I've gone through this. I, I've taught a lot of people over the years um you know my best success story was when i was living in green bay wisconsin street fighter 4 had come out and suddenly a bunch of people who were not fighting game people were interested in fighting games because street fighter 4 and mm -hmm. i was having them over to my house you know uh, one to two times a week and uh teaching them that the best i could and had some really successful lessons and uh you know like one one match that i remember i was playing for about 15 seconds, I didn't press a single button, uh, just used the joystick, and I walked my opponent into the corner. <laughs> and I paused the game. And he looked at me, he's like, why'd you pause? And I said, how did you get to the corner? And I made him really think about how he got there. Why, he, why was he cornered by a person who hadn't pressed a single attack or done a single special move? Like, why was he so scared of me that despite me doing nothing, he was willing to give up all of his space. It's like pressure with no pressure, basically, yeah. <laughs> right, and then explain to him why the space he lost is even important, right? There's so many hard lessons. Uh, another one was this guy uh, who would just do cami spin knuckle all the time. <laughs> and in Street Fighter Four, it's not a particularly good move. And I would say 80% of the time, I would punish him for it. About 10% of the time, I would block it. And 
you know, about 5% of the time it would miss entirely and about 5% of the time it would hit me. Really horrible success rate, right? Just awful. And then I'd just be like, hey, why do you do that move all the time? And his reply was, it works sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's just like, it's honest. Hopefully, so. a breakthrough moment. It's honest. Yeah. Hopefully, it's a breakthrough moment when you explain to him, like, the, the risk reward of it, where, you know, best case, he gets, you know, 20 damage and 80% of the time I'm dealing 120 damage back to him. Right. That's a really bad proposition to make repeatedly for no reason. Right. Um, that, that same guy, actually, the Kami Spin Knuckle guy, I ended up, uh, learning Tatsunoko versus Capcom with him and uh, he got 13th at Evo in Tatsunoko versus Capcom the same year I got 7th. So. Wow, that's a far cry then from the spin knuckles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he did great, he did great. Uh, his name is Sawa, so if he ever hears this, Clay, I'm proud of you. Last question I have for you here. Uh, you're stuck on a desert island, and you only have access to one fighting game for a year. And I have a feeling I know which one you're going to go with, but which one do you go with? It's Killer Instinct. Of course it is. <laughs> like, I mean, people are going to be like, oh, he's just shilling the game he worked on, right? But I made that game for myself, right? I, I fell in love with Season 1, which Double Helix made, not me. So I fell in love with something somebody else made. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to shepherd it all the way through Season two three and, and three plus and really craft it even more so into the game that i wanted to play um and that there's nothing i'd rather play than that honestly if you'd like to send us any feedback opinions retro games or topics for us to cover or anything at all really you can email us at ardcast at retrozap.com and be sure to check out retrozap.com for all sorts of other amazing podcasts it's your home away from home if you're crazy about Star Wars, Animaniacs, or pop culture in general. There's also us with Arcast, so be sure to find us on iTunes to subscribe, give us five stars, and tell your neighbors. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. So there's absolutely no reason to not follow another retro gaming podcast. And uh, where can people go in order to find you online, Keats? I'm on Twitter, at the Keats, K-E-I-T-S. And uh, I don't have a SoundCloud or anything. Twitter's fine. <laughs> this isn't like a Twitter post or anything that went viral. Or yeah. <laughs> Check out my SoundCloud. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I tweet a lot about game dev and fighting game community stuff, but I also tweet a lot about politics. So uh, follow at your own risk. Mm. You and I are definitely going to have a lot to talk about, I think, on Twitter for sure, because I definitely tweet a lot about politics as well. So. Yeah, I've been real angry for the, the last X amount of years. You have good reason to be. Yeah, uh -huh. absolutely. <laughs> Well, Keats, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on. And uh, if you'd like to follow ArcCast on Twitter, we are at ArcPodcast. Same thing on Facebook, facebook.com slash ArcPodcast. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Guilty Man. And yeah, that is ArcCast Mini number 41 in the books. And until next time, keep it retro.
What's up, everybody? My name's Garrett Morlang. Hey, everybody. I'm JJ Prudhomme. And we are the Super Gamer Boys. And we are the preeminent video game podcast in the entire world. We are trying to take over the world with all of our comedy, with news and whatnot. And we are so excited to be members of the HP Video Game Podcast Network. Yes, we bring you uh, all the news you want to know every week. We bring you movie reviews, game reviews, uh, and all the goofs you want to hear. So come check us out every Wednesday on your favorite podcast service. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.